Welcome to The Politics Guys. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. We're happy to bring this Politics Guys interview to you ad-free. Well, we're not happy about it because we could really use the money, which reminds me, if you'd like to support the show, you can go to politicsguys.com and click on the Patreon link. And now, on to the interview. My guest today is Luis Perez Breva, a successful serial innovator and director of the Innovation Teams program at MIT. Dr. Perez Breva holds degrees in chemical engineering, physics, business, and artificial intelligence. He's an expert in the process of technology innovation, an entrepreneur, and the author of Innovating, a doer's manifesto for starting from a hunch, prototyping problems, scaling up, and learning to be productively wrong. Dr. Perez Breva, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You know, I'd like to start by talking about innovation and jobs in general before we focus on uh, your latest book. Uh, there, there are a number of people who argue that innovation is in long-term decline. And I think most notably is the economist Robert Gordon, who in his book, The Rise and Fall of American Growth, argues that innovation has slowed dramatically in the last 40 to 50 years or so. And that that period of around 1870 to 1970 was kind of an unusual time of these sort of one-off huge innovations that most notably, I'd say, electricity and automobiles, and that we shouldn't expect to see anything like that again anytime soon. Would you agree with that? So I I always have a bit of 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 a problem with this kind of analysis in hindsight, because they tend to throw strange surprises. So, so let me just say, for instance, there's lots of things that have happened since 1970 that are pretty dramatic. The internet, e-commerce, uh, artificial intelligence may blossom in a few years, in, and I believe it will do so in, a, in very different ways from the way the, the panic we see today seems to, to predict. Genetics is booming, biotechnology is on the rise, CRISPR may open up a new area for genomics. Just last month, Alnylam opened the door to a new class of therapies with RNA interference. So my question to Robert Gordon, and I, and I do value the, the job and the analysis, is will someone in the year 2050 agree with him but extend the period to the year 2010 as opposed to 1970? And, and the reason why, why I ask that is, is because it takes the kind of innovations that we now celebrate, like automobile or electricity or airplanes, a good 20 years to graft. So it's, it's, whenever you engage in, an, in analysis in hindsight, it, it will always look as though the good ones, which is the ones that are really fully grafted already, are already in the past. And the ones that the future economists will talk about don't really, have not really reached scale just yet. And contrary to what people believe, scaling up a technology and new innovations is actually a tough job that takes a good 10 to 20 years before it fully grafts. So, I, I think that these analyses are, are sort of a reflection that we love to take stories in. We love to talk about stories in hindsight. Uh, and, uh, and we love them because they look epic and they look unrepeatable. And I guess that's how we define innovation, right? But when you start, and that's what concerns me, they just don't look like that anymore. They, they, they look very different. But I will say one thing for, for Robert Gordon, which is that Considering how many people view entrepreneurship as a career option today, uh, I think he's right about the conclusion, we can do much better than we have been doing. And so we agree on the conclusion, but I'm not sure we agree on on the reasoning behind that conclusion. Okay. You know, then there are 
Then there are other people. Uh, I'm, I'm thinking of uh, Martin Ford, who I talked to uh, earlier this year on the show, actually, who say that before too much longer, uh, artificial intelligence is going to be good enough to take over really tens of millions of jobs. And, you know, not just in areas that people think about when they think about this, like, you know, transportation, autonomous vehicles and so forth. But he argues also in areas like law and education. And, and really, it seems like almost everything except for those kind of uh, hands-on, really complex activities that you can't design an algorithm for like, you know, uh, home health care or electricians, plumbers, carpenters, and that sort of thing. And envisioning an era of mass unemployment, essentially, or underemployment. What do you think about those sort of pessimistic projections? So, you know, I've, I've heard these, these projections a number of times over the last two years and never before two years ago. Uh, and, um, and something doesn't sound right to me about this. It's just too too fatalistic. It's just, things don't have things are neither black or white. So, you know. So, I find it helpful to come back to what we've actually done thus far to see whether there is any justification for this. So today, we have yet to produce a single system that meaningfully exhibits any kind of real intelligence. We haven't yet produced one. Our best proxy is a computer that that, you know, AlphaGo, that beat the champion at, of Go, uh, at Go recently, but only at Go, right? And no one actually interviewed the machine, right? Because no one thought of it as intelligent. So, and, and when you look at what we do in terms of research, we, we aren't even sure how to define intelligence. But somehow this thing that we don't know how to create yet has in the imaginary of, of, of society taken a life of its own. It's smarter than us. It's faster, it needs no energy, it is evil, and can do everything but jobs that require no education. So I don't know, that's kind of like taking it a bit too far. And, and, and in reality, what, what happens is when, when I see these jobs, when I look at what these people are trying to do, is they're enumerating every job that in their opinion requires intelligence, and then they're assuming that if intelligence is created that's better than us, uh, well, they, it will take it over. And I'm not sure that that's actually a, a useful analysis. Uh, but we can turn this panic into a productive discussion by mostly looking at what we've done as humans for a long time, right? So, you know, you, no one goes around switching on and off gas lights in the streets anymore. And yet more people work today than they did then, right? There's more people working today. So to me, the real question isn't really about whether AI will come and, and will oust us from the planet. It really is about how do we use AI as we are developing? And it's going to take many years to develop AI that's just minimally intelligent uh, so that we level the playing field so that you and then artificial intelligence can actually reach further, which is what technology is really all about. And this has happened before also, right? Because when Ford created the assembly line, that's exactly what he did. He turned what, had, what was a really highly skilled job and laborious, such as assembling a car, into one that humans without the same amount of training could also do. So that's what we need to aspire for. And while the panic is helping us create a new conversation, which I like, we can also turn that panic into something that isn't just about thinking that Terminator will come and, and oust us. It could also be Iron Man, right? And Jarvis, the intelligence that helps uh, Tony Stark become a superhero. I prefer that movie when it comes right. to thinking about the AI we built. 
Yeah. So in, uh, in other words, it sounds like you're saying that you think that as opposed to uh, re- replacing us, that AI will open up more uh, options, more opportunities, and that will be more uh, partners than than slaves to the AI, I guess. I, I think so. And, and, you know, goes back to some of your examples. So driverless cars, people ask me often about what will happen with driverless cars in some way or another and say, well, you know, what I see today is that Uber doesn't have a fleet of cars today. So if driverless cars come in, chances are it might be better to retrofit your car so it drives on its own than for Uber to buy a whole new set of really expensive uh, cars that also drive on their own. So chances are that instead of you losing the money you're making now with Uber, which you couldn't do before there was at least a little bit of machine learning, uh, chances are that maybe progress will make your car go around without you and you will be able to do something else so you'll have kind of two jobs. So that future is also possible. So which one do you choose to believe in? Because at this point it's mostly belief. Yeah. Right. Now, now there, there are some people kind of along the same lines who say, yes, that's been the, uh, how things have worked between humans and technology uh, up until now, but we're getting to the point where technology is getting good enough and being able to do as much that the capabilities of humans to sort of uh, reskill and retrain that, that we're going to, it's going to be harder and harder to do over time and that we're kind of reaching the limits of what we can do with re-educating mass numbers of people. Do you think that's too pessimistic or is there anything to that? Uh, I think it's too pessimistic, but I also think that uh, this is a call for us to think carefully about what we actually mean by re-educating people, as you, as you said. So we need to be better at actually sharing the education and at helping people uh, start and acquire the education by focusing on real-world problems, for instance. So I think it's a call for us to think about education in a new, modern way uh, and to reinvent education. It is not a call for panic that, you know, machines are going to take over. I, I just don't think that will ever happen. But, you know, I also want to say that this feeling that we are experiencing today has been there every single time. There's been the beginning of a revolution because people look at what people know how to do today and then they realize that the next jobs are going to be different. And so there is uncertainty. And when people face uncertainty, instead of actually taking in heads on, panic tends to be the first result. But We've been doing this thing of actually creating technologies and then inventing new jobs since the prehistoric acts, right? So it's, we have many thousands of years of progress and track record of doing this and never once having done the opposite. So I, I am rooting for humans. Well, right? I, I, yeah, I'm with you there. Uh, now, before we talked uh, today, I looked up the top three companies in the world by market cap and uh, there are Apple, Alphabet, which is Google's parent company, and and Microsoft. Now, combined, uh, they employ just over 315,000 people worldwide. And and then I went and compared that to 1979, when GM, which was the top company by market cap back then, had nearly double that many workers in the U.S. alone. And worldwide, it had over two and a half times more than today's top three combined. And and like many people, you know, I think I'd look at this and I see a future where, yes, we have fabulously innovative and wealthy companies, but companies that employ fewer and fewer people. I mean, is this, are, are these numbers something to be concerned about, do you think? Uh, yeah, I, I am of two minds there. I, I think it's, a, it's, a, it's an awesome 
uh, it really is an awesome reflection to look at at the size of these companies, and uh, and 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 on the one side, I kind of think I deeply agree with you that we haven't been great at sharing wealth, and I think that's actually hurting us because people have conflated entrepreneurship and innovation, and this has led to a very strange gold rush in which entrepreneurs think of fabulous riches instead of actually solving problems, which is what we need to create jobs. So that's definitely something we need to work on. So on the one side, we do need to be concerned about something which is helping people find, I mean, help people, more people find an appetite for solving real world problems. Because what we have now may create instability. And, and you know, I, I like to think of the example of Snapchat uh, to see that, that concentration of riches and, and the gold rush. So Snapchat required $2.8 billion to go public. It was valued at 20 billion. And yet at the time of their filing, uh, it reported losing 200 million a year on revenues of barely twice that in its IPO filing. So to me, this looks like a bailout, the market bailed out, and that's actually not good because it, it, it's pointing to this, uh, to something you said, which is like, we are people kind of, we're creating wealthy companies, but not necessarily improving the economy. And what this tells us is that we need to do better so that upcoming entrepreneurs contribute to long-term growth and in essence, the economy. But on the other hand, when I look at the figures you shared about the numbers, um, you know, I, I, I think of it as, as uh, today, I look at other numbers, right? Uh, so today un unemployment is hovering around 5%, a bit less, and uh, nearly 100, more million, 100, more, 100 million people more are actually working in this country than there were uh, in 1979. So I would say that when you look at the actual jobs market, we've created jobs, a lot of them. Uh, so the statistic might be telling us something that's actually hopeful, which is that it takes fewer people to create a very large and powerful company. And if my view of that is true, and of course more research would be required, then that's actually great because on the one hand, we have many more kinds of businesses today than we did back in 1979. And if it takes fewer people to create big businesses, it means that, uh, every new technology that's coming up today, and there are some pretty fantastic ones, uh, should be able to scale up to more, I mean, to more population with fewer people, which means that we, we get to do even more companies that do amazing new things. The counter argument would be that if we still need nearly a million people to do any one large company, then we are not going to be able to seize all the opportunities ahead for genetics, for biotechnology, for AI, and for all those things. So I, I, I am of two minds, we need to do better, so that we actually do really meaningful companies. But on the other hand, I don't see in these numbers cause for concern. I also see a glim, gleam of hope. Oh, I, 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 like, I like your way of looking at that for sure. Uh, you know, I, I'd like to now turn to your, your latest book, uh, Innovating a Doer's Manifesto. And, and just to start with, what prompted you to write it? So uh, a lot of things, but in a way, your previous questions actually point to many, many of those things. So your earlier questions about hindsight, revisionism, and sort of our desire to predict kind of drove me to it. So think about it. I've been sharing what to do to innovate, starting from what you actually have today for over a decade now. And I've been doing it at MIT, and I've done it globally, and I've done it in academia. And by now, I've had this conversation with over 3,000 people, and I've done it also in, in industry. And, and, and I've consistently observed one pattern that has only gotten more clear, which is that somehow, we've mixed up entrepreneurship and innovation and we've conflated the two terms. And as a result, we, we see a, I see a highly distorted view of one has to do to innovate. And, and the way I, I like to explain this to my students early on in class is 
is by analogy with, with music. So imagine, so bear with me and, and allow me to, to play this out, but imagine we were to teach music the way most people understand innovation today. So this is what you as an aspiring musician would actually be inclined to do. You would not start by buying or renting an instrument or getting lessons. You would mostly settle on an instrument, say, I don't know, saxophone. Then you decide the melody you would want to play, that one melody, and it would be a majestic melody. Then you would prepare a pitch deck, and for six months or so, you would share with the world how majestic the piece you will eventually play will be. You would tell them that you are going to speak, uh, you would speak about you know, how you will play this in a philharmonic of your choosing, possibly not even knowing that philharmonics don't tend to have saxophones. And then, and then you would ask for, for money and describe how it would help you increase your follower base. And you would walk into incubators and accelerators that help you refine your target follower and perfect your pitch, as well as introduce you to everybody that matters according to them. And so two years into it, you would have an instrument you barely know how to play. Uh, so you've probably, and by the way, this is the way we teach entrepreneurship today. It's become this celebration of big, big ideas or big markets, but not necessarily how, what you need to do. And so you've probably experienced this actually yourself and, and maybe, maybe your, your listeners have because uh, it's very odd. You've, I'm sure you've heard advice like to be more innovative, you have to be more entrepreneurial or embrace failure or you have been admonished to focus on the user and, and not do anything else uh, or interview 100 users before you even put two things together. And so this is the, the feeling my, the people I've talked to over the last 10 years actually have and it's gotten worse, which is that somehow they're being rushed to do something they have no clue about. And so I've, the way I've, I've traced this back to how people read the abundant literature on, on the topic of innovation, which speaks about innovation, not unlike the two examples you mentioned before. It's either epic tales of uncanny insight that are revisited with the benefit of hindsight, or it's a call for people to predict spectacular futures for their early ideas. But no one seems to be talking about the present. So what drove me is that there is really no book on what do you do. And, uh, and so, but I, I would lie to you if I told you uh, I was born and I decided I wanted to write this book. It was mostly after a program we did at MIT with, with Russia, in which we tried to implement a hands-on way to help students understand and solve real-world problems that um, some of my colleagues pushed me to write it. And then what I discovered is that this was a real challenge because the book had to feel like what I do when I'm talking to students or to academia. And I'm, and I'm very easygoing, right? I, I like my courses to be accessible, to conduce people to action, not speculation. And, but I also like to produce defensible ideas. And, so, and then I also want people to enjoy it. So which meant that if I wanted to translate all that in a book, I had to write a book that was a joy to own, easy to read, jargon-free, artistically illustrated, rather than treating you as if you were a robot. And, but it also had to pass peer review. So that was a tall order. I did all that. And believe me, I did not know I was going to do that before I started. Huh, right. Now, so let, let's talk a little bit about that. I mean, I know it's it's impossible to summarize everything in the book. And there's a lot there's a lot of great stuff in the book. I, I have a copy. I think it's, a, it's an amazing book. But can you kind of give us a general sense of how you think the process of innovation either works or should work? Yeah, so I'll try. <laughs> I, I poured my soul into that book so that you would have it's packed with ideas, but, but I can try to give it you a, a quick summary by mostly focusing on what, I, what innovation maybe ought to look like. So on the one side, you know, I want to dispel the notion there are no recipes for innovation. 
there simply aren't. And there will never be because you're doing something new for the first time. So it, there cannot be a recipe for it already. It's not like doing a chocolate cake. Uh, so, and then the other thing is that innovation is highly nonlinear, which means that predicting is kind of futile. And then longing for resources you don't have so you can see the future that you've somehow conjured in your brain is not necessarily the best path to progress. So instead, we need to focus on building the future, not gamble on it. And so that's essentially what, what the book is about. I think this, there is a quote I, I like a lot that uh, many of my friends have shared with me when they read the book, which is, so I'm borrowing from them, that says that when all you have is uncertainty, the only rational decision is diversification. And so what the book, and innovating more generally, is about, is about skills and the practice that starts with what you have today and informs your progress. So you build an organization that stands a chance to solve a real world problem. It's not about gambling. So as you reduce uncertainty, the problem that gives you purpose evolves and gets better defined. And so at the genesis, nothing is new. Uh, and this is the outcome of what you're doing that tends to be disruptive. It is not the idea you start with. It is not how you behave. It's just innovating. It really is a very general kind of problem solving that involves just way too much learning for your first version of your idea to, to be all that important. And I think a lot of people are thinking about innovation the wrong way, which is they're, they're placing the, 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 ho the horse behind the, I forget the, the American expression, but you know, the carriage before the horse. Uh, and so, and they think that they need to have this fantastic idea before they even begin. And that's never happened. It's not happened a single once. So one time you actually start doing, and then you, dis you discover what the real solution ought to be as you're actually understanding the obstacle that compelled you in the first place to actually go for it. So, so it sounds like from, from what you're saying that uh, a certain amount or a high degree of flexibility uh, is, is fairly important in this process. It is critical, yes, because otherwise you are sort of, you should run into strange cognitive dissonances because if you believe that there is a rigid process that takes you to something that's new, uh, you are sort of, at some point it, sh it should hit you that there is no way you can discover something new by repeating st stuff that you know how to do, right? So at some point you, you have to fit in learning and learning is actually a very tough process. It's something we are capable of doing hu as humans like no other species can, uh, but it implies being incredibly flexible and understanding that along the path, the initial idea has to evolve. Otherwise, you just knew everything from the beginning. And so how is that new? Right, right. Now, in the book, you discuss the importance of being what you call productively wrong. I love that phrase. Can you explain what that means? Yes, it's, it's a, that, that, that comment emerged in class uh, many years ago as a response to a question from a student that asked me about uh, failure. And I said, I responded, I just have no clue what failure means. And he, he looked at me <laughs> shocked and said, well, you know, like, I mean, you know, and, and this has only gotten more permanent these days. People confuse being entrepreneurial with failure, which makes kind of no sense to me. But then you are told to fail fast and then learn as if any of those things actually were actions you do, right? And I'm a big proponent of just telling to students things they can do, not summaries or, 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 or indirect actions. And so, but in reality, failing and then somehow reflecting is not really how any of us learn. L learning looks obscure because it, we do it so naturally, but it's not a one-shot action. So, so and, and, and being wrong is your indicator for you having lear been learned, for you having learned. So, uh, so 
the day you can tell how you were going about something the day before was wrong is the day you've learned something. So being wrong is actually the, your indicator for knowing you've learned something, right? And, and it might be easier to go back to the music example for, for, for to kind of use the same examples I use in class. So, so you do not start by playing in tune. Anybody that, that knows an instrument or has actually played an instrument and knows that at first they are completely out of tune. But you learn how to do that by actually playing and repeating certain skills over and over. And so uh, you know you have learned when you can start to spot that your instrument is out of tune. That is when you can tell something is wrong, when you can tell that something about your playing is wrong and have a sense for how to fix it. Failure, if you want to stress the analogy, would be to persuade your way to playing with a philharmonic orchestra before you even know how to play in tune. And by then, I'm not sure what you really stand to learn other than perhaps you should have done something else from the get-go. Right, so those are two very different con concepts uh, in many ways. And productively wrong means that's how you learn. And the productive part is easy to, to explain because um, if you set your inquiry to understand how you're wrong when there is still time to fix it, then you are sort of protected against all the biases that kind of mar entrepreneurship today, confirmation bias and so on. And you get to go about it by, by emphasizing practice and refinement of skills rather than just by trying to be right. And then we can talk about scaling up. We can talk about um, what you learn along the process instead of being obsessed about coming up with an earth-shattering idea or disruptive or exponential one at the very beginning. So, so then, then having a having a robust feedback loop and kind of committing yourself to sort of an iterative process is it sounds to be really critical to, to successful innovating. I agree, but notice how I've been very clever at avoiding the keyword iteration. <laughs> because it's massively charged these days. Even in the book, I have a, a box about it. Um, iteration is just our life, right? You go about your life every day, right? Every day you look at certain things, some things are repeated, some things are changed. So iteration is just what you do. It's what you do in any context in which uh, you're learning. So it's just, there is nothing to it other than repeating some tasks, some of them differently, every day based on what you learned the previous day. So the reality is that there's a closed feedback loop and it's mostly about, not so much about iterating. I mean, the alternative to iterating is having the solution from the get-go, I guess, which no one does. Uh, so it really, the emphasis is not so much on iterating as many people praise. It's on, a, it's on actually trying to figure out what's wrong so you can fix it because only when you fix it, people will be able to benefit from it, right? And whether, if you have to do that, if you manage to do that in one, in one single shot, that's fine by me, <laughs> right? Yeah, pro probably unlikely, I imagine, in most cases. Um, you know, what do you think, uh, what, what do you think government can do, if, if it can do anything, to sort of encourage, to, to support the kind of innovation that you describe in the book? That's, that's a wonderful question, and it's really, really, really hard to address because governments are so huge. But, uh, but you know, let me, let me look at it, try, let me try to take a stab at it. So... From a policy standpoint, innovation, meaning from what the government should care about, is about progress, economic progress, stability, and making sure that society's resources are, are not wasted, right? And technology, which is different from innovation, is a means by which we all get to reach further and hopefully reduce inequalities. So if, I, if you take this as the objective of a government, which is the government is not there to produce products, right? That's someone else's uh, job but rather to create the kind of econ economy we're doing that is actually increasingly easier for everyone. Or 
in which innovating with nonprofits or in other, other ways is actually increasingly easier. So then you look at what even the U.S. government has long has done in the past, and it turns out that the U.S. government has a an endless supply of policy actions that have favored progress of the kind that translates into innovation. So there is the GI Bill uh, that created a whole middle class out of nothing. Uh, there is the um, the U.S. government became the first customer for PCs and thus sparked the PC market. Uh, it's also been known to advance bold research and ideas uh, with DARPA, with NASA, with ERPA, even with SBIR grants. And uh, what we're seeing today, unfortunately, is a lot of people focusing on the fact that these people have what people call bureaucratic jobs and not focusing so much on the impact many of these agencies and parts of the government have had by having actions that emphasize society's benefit. benefit. So I believe that as a general rule, government is at its best when it does actions that do not follow foregone conclusions. Much like good entrepreneurs isn't about fighting over the benefits of the idea you just had, but rather is about building and solving a real world problem. And these real world problems do not look like foregone conclusions or issues, they look like obstacles. And so when, uh, and, and, but the good news is that they typically don't have just one solution, they have plenty of solutions. It's just not the one you imagine at first. So I think that moving towards understanding where the obstacles are and trying to seize directly economic progress by measures like this that actually help the population, that's the way a government, one of the ways in which governments can actually have meaningful impact. Mm-hmm. Uh, kind of turning the question around a little bit, do you think that there are any things that government does that uh, actively hinder innovation? Uh, I, I do. <laughs> uh, I do. So uh, governments, I think that governments around the world over the last 20 years have joined this conflation of entrepreneurship and innovation. And, and it makes some sense, right? It's, it wasn't a bad idea to go with at first, which is the hope is that more entrepreneurs means more innovation and more jobs and growth except that entrepreneurship and innovation are not the same thing. It's actually entrepreneurs who innovate that create those jobs, those new jobs, right? And so the way they've actually, and by the way, the last 20 years of economic data, I believe seem to imply that perhaps that conflation was not that great an idea to start with. And hopefully now we know. So, and the way they've done that specifically is that if you look at, at, um, at statistics that are published by, by some of them by the, by the UN, the way the government has actually joined the entrepreneurship domain is by, by funding intermediaries, incubators, accelerators, sometimes even venture capital. And these are all potentially good things, but at the current level of, of enthusiasm and funding for each of them, uh, I don't think we have the most efficient way to use society's resources and to make sure that we don't waste society's resources, including capital, human capital that's been trained. Because you just need to look at the statistics, right? Most of incubators claim success when they, one out of 100 works. That's not great. That's perhaps not the way the government should be emphasizing entrepreneurship and innovation. Perhaps the government should be looking for ways to help doers, doers reach further with their money. So they too get to find time to explore and tinker. And by the way, this is the way Ford or Wozniak did what they did. It wasn't by going to an incubator and so on and so forth. VCs played a role, of course. But it's not by making VCs more powerful that we make the Fords or the Bosniaks more empowered, right? And I think that's been a, a conflation. Uh, the other thing that I believe has happened, and it's, 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 uh, it's, this touches more in the research world, is that a lot of governments worldwide are demanding that researchers not only have good research ideas, but also have a clear idea 
of the future impact of those ideas. And that biases research dramatically to short-term thinking. It asks for of researchers that they do something that's counter to what the research practice is. Bold ideas don't get funded. And uh, it is kind of the government version of obsessing about the initial idea instead of obsessing about making sure that people thrive. And so, and so what I would like to, to, to see is governments that empower people to solve unsolvable and overcome obstacles, but that requires very bold kind of thinking and not necessarily fund the middle steps, but make sure that the people at the other ends have the time and opportunity to explore, right? Because that's how you get real innovation. Right. Yep. No, my one final question for you, you know, that there are some people who say that, you know, it's government itself that's really in, in need of innovation. You know, in the United States, for instance, we, we have this centuries old design for governance and it may have been, uh, you know, a wonderful fit for society, the culture, the problems of 1789. But over time, the argument goes, this has become more and more dysfunctional. And I'm wondering, do you think there's anything to that, and if you do, do you think it's possible for our sort of huge sclerotic government to uh, apply any of the innovation principles that you discuss in your book? That's an excellent, excellent, it's an excellent question. Here I'm going to take the, the attitude of the economist and, and, and take a stab at it by mostly saying that government, as we understand it today, is just one step in the evolution, right? So if you look at governments over many centuries, what you see is that governments evolve. Right, and they evolve in various ways. Uh, some are revolutions, some are more smooth. And so I think the idea of imagining new government has a lot of merit. Uh, but, but I also believe that we're starting to see changes there. And when you see changes, they look messy. Now, I don't know what the future beholds in terms of future government, but I can tell that you know, Twitter and social media has become a stronger force in politics than many people, uh, more than many people anticipated and possibly more people are wrestling with it right now. Then there's a surge of movements for increasing the power of local governments over more centralized governments that makes sense in a world that has so much more communication, but also challenges many notions like the state nation model that was born precisely around the 1780, uh, 1789. So, so we are seeing messy, messy indications that one such change may be coming. And, uh, and so I'm hopeful that uh, governments can actually indeed apply lessons in my book to think through how they can improve themselves without necessarily going through uh, disruptive revolutions, meaning let's make the outcome disruptive, but not the way we get there. And so, which is a lot of a message of, of my book is that you don't need to kind of cause a revolution from the first go, get go, you just need to make people better at the other end. Um, and so that's why in the book, I actually did not limit myself, myself to examples of technological startups, but tried my best to include examples of people that have managed to create policy changes through their actions like Greenpeace or XPRIZE, uh, among others, to show that innovation is about more than coming up with, with just a new product, which is how governments can participate. It's not about the product. It's about realizing that it isn't about breaking things or dismantling them either. It's not about revolutions. It's not about short-term cost reduction. It's about fundamentally understanding that if we are going to go continuously from today to that future in which we govern ourselves differently, we are very likely to start by learning how to reuse or repurpose things we do today in a different way so that we understand how much more flexible our current structures are than we give them credit for. And so innovation and new jobs follow after realizing that there is plenty of other problems you can solve with seemingly minute changes to things you do today. 
Uh, you, you know, it, it occurs to me throughout our entire conversation that uh, what I sense more than anything else is is a real feeling of uh, of of optimism and hope from you. And I, and I have to say, I, I talk to so many people who are so incredibly cynical and pessimistic that this has been a, a, a kind of a nice, refreshing change. So thank you for that. Thank you. Thank you. I, I don't think of myself as an optimist, by the way. I think of myself just as a doer. Things turn out to be much easier to do than anybody suspects when you actually get down to it. Uh, but, you know, you can always predict very horrible futures if you don't do anything. So I, I my experience is that there is always a way, right? And uh, that's what brought me to the United States in the first place many years ago. Here, we everyone believes there is always a way, Bye. right? Yeah, I, I, I really like that. I think it's a great pl- a great place to close. Uh, and so, uh, Dr. Luis Presbreva, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Thank you so much for having me. I had lots of fun. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. We hope you liked what you heard. Listener support is a really big help to us, and we truly do appreciate it. If you're interested in joining our great group of Politics Guys supporters, you can go to politicsguys.com and click on the Patreon link. And if you'd like to support the show without spending anything, it really does help if you get the word out by sharing this episode with your friends and followers or passing along our new show posts and tweets on Facebook and Twitter. Leaving reviews and ratings on iTunes also does really help. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can do that at mail at politicsguys.com or through our Facebook page where you can message us and we post stuff throughout the week. That's facebook.com slash politicsguys page. We're also on Twitter at politicsguys. The executive producers of The Politics Guys are Michael Baranowski, Jay Carson, Trey Orndorff, and Bruce Johnson. Today's show was produced by Michael Baranowski. We'll be back with a new show on Saturday. We hope you'll join us.